It's nice to meet you. Carrot McQueen, man. <laughs> Strong name. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Jonathan Gibbs. And this is Triloquy. Tricks, treats, trills, music, and uh, lots of other stuff today on this very special opus guest hosted by Jonathan Gibbs. Scott is on vacation this week. So, you know, since Jonathan and I, Jonathan, since we've worked together before in this capacity, I thought you would be the perfect fill in. So thanks for uh, coming in today. I put Garrett McQueen where he is today. No. Oh, oh, did you? Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Garrett was very much, what was this, uh, 2000s? I met Garrett in 2009, 8, something like Over that. Over a decade ago. Over a decade ago. And um, when I met Garrett, Garrett was graduating from USC uh, and then working with do you say your former employer's name? I mean, it's public information. I mean, but but why acknowledge them? Why acknowledge? Why them? acknowledge it? But if y'all know Garrett, then Garrett was working in those places and very concerned with the practices and uh, business of the orchestra. But we started a podcast together. Yep. And I feel like you were not really into radio or broadcast. I'm not going to take credit. I'm just saying. I mean, I, I, I was there when you. The, the idea of hosting and, and emceeing and all that, I wasn't even thinking about it. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some I'll, I'll give you some some treats there. That's fine. Thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> uh, today's downbeat um, was offered by the legendary Wayne Shorter. I think that's another treat for this opus and the third movement. Uh, you're going to hear excerpts from my conversation with him. It was a two hour conversation. We're not going to include all of that, but we'll put um, some some little bits uh, of it in there um, in the second movement today. Uh, we have some Kanye West to talk about. We're going to dip into our Halloween bag by uh, talking, Jonathan, about one of our last um, Halloween. How, how would you describe that? A, a gallivant across New York City? I, I don't know. <laughs> a gallivant followed by um, a parting of ways, a Rip Van Winkle and a tryst. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And we'll leave it there for now. We'll be getting into that. And then, of course, in the final movement, the triloquy, Jonathan, I feel like that movement of this podcast was made just for you because I know how you love to drag and 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 talk shit and do all that. You know, just like the uh, brand of hair relaxer or whatever, just for me. <laughs> And first of all, that theme song hit. That theme song used to hit. It did. I think we're going to talk about that later in this, too. Like various <laughs> theme songs, or at least one theme song that we really enjoyed. And I feel like I wanted, I wrote in my own notes for that section right. that I wanted to talk about a few other theme songs. Right, right. Here's theme songs were just good back when we were coming up. Oh, yeah. Look, we sound old now. But now <laughs> theme songs today, it's just like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, and Jonathan, thank you for coming on my show. Let's get into this first movie. Okay, so uh, before we check our accidentals here, Jonathan, why don't you um, introduce yourself to the audience? Longtime Triloquy listeners will uh, remember you from an early opus, but tell, tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Jonathan, and I go by Blation FMA on the internet. I am the host of the podcast This QPOC Life, or This QPOC Life. It sounds like Tupac. Uh, we view the world through the lens of a queer person of color, but that's not always been my gig. I am actually a content creator and have been 
uh, present on the YouTube platform for over a decade now, going on 13 years, where I have talked about and am concerned with relations at the intersection of Black and Asian identity, hence the name Blasian FMA. Mm -hmm. uh, and more recently, I've made a comeback to YouTube and I talk about the crazy stuff that is going on in the world with regards to Karening, um, racist incidents, <laughs> the news. It's just a it's a variety bag at this point. Um, so I do those two things, and I'm also doing work in, again, the intersection of black and Asian identity online and trying to get the communities to come together. Because with COVID-19, the coronavirus, there's been an uptick in violence towards Asians. Yep. And um, it's, it's a really horrible thing, but a lot of the fallout and the discussions that are happening because of that are very complicated, especially when you consider who is attacking Asians who Asians are focusing on when they get attacked. It's just a lot. It's a lot. Um, and then when you tie in sort of the um, the interesting, uh, I, I will almost say delicate relationship between black communities and Asian communities, sometimes it's, you know, very harmonious and, and, and some great things to explore. Other times it's not. You know, I've been thinking uh, Do the Right Thing was on TV a couple weeks ago, and I've been thinking about that scene after they burn down the uh, the pizza shop, when they turn on the Korean shop and the Koreans, you know, convince them that I, oh, I'm one of y'all and X, Y, and Z. But you know, th those th that that intersection is is very, very, very interesting to me. That intersection has four corners, and one of the corners is harmonious, but then the other three corners, it's there's a lot of history there. Let's just leave it at that. There's a lot of history, and uh, it's very tumultuous, um, like you said. Um, it's it's a lot in that there are sects of both populations that just don't like each other right period then you have pockets of people that are like we should all live together and you know it should be all good and then there's another part that's like we need to understand that we are pitted and wedged against each other because of white people so it's like trying to get all of that under one roof and then moving forward and there are people who just will never do it and it's it's a lot to juggle and you know, a lot to know when you need to disengage. A lot of the a lot of the hoteps will um, sort Chow, of will, hoteps. There are Asian hoteps too. They they will cite how you know so much of uh, South Africa and uh, even West Africa is being uh, they'll use the word infiltrated you know by Asian communities and and all this sort of stuff. Ha have you looked at at much of that you know China specifically in Africa, North Korea in Africa even because that's a thing. Yeah, um, I've been looking into all of these things, and it, there's many different types of relations going on between many different types of Asians and black folks, whether we're talking about Asian American, black American, whether we're talking about China going into Africa. Um, so, again, it's about specificity and nuance. Uh, and you can't be everywhere at every time, but you have to be able to be knowledgeable, just like any discipline, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, you know, um, I, I kind of mentioned that to segue us into this first accidental of mine. I'm going to um, give this a sharp, not because it's good news as much as, you know, I sort of had a sharp reaction to coming in uh, to this uh, late. So on Twitter for a while now, there has been the hashtag in SARS. And, um, you know, for folks who don't know SARS, what, what they're referring to here is not the, you know, um, the, the virus that was going on for a while, but is actually uh, talking about a, a uh, an anti-robbery uh, squad in, 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 uh, in Nigeria specifically. What, what do you know about in SARS, Jonathan? 
I mean, I, after doing the research, it's basically po a special sect of the police there. Mm -hmm. But um, if you're going to ask me, like, if you were to ask me, like, what did you know about SARS prior to, like, this week, I would tell you that I had heard about them without knowing who they were weeks ago, maybe even a month ago here in New York, where there was a protest going on. And at that point, you know, we had had so many protests that it was more of a like, well, what are what are we protesting today? What's right. going on? I didn't hear about a protest. And then someone told me like, oh, yeah, that's something going on in Nigeria. And then I just left it at that. Mm. But then it wasn't until this week, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, uh, that I saw people were pressuring Beyonce into talking about SARS and letting the people know because hashtag influencer and that's the way influencing works. That's how it's always worked with celebrities and everything. Right, so right. she she caved, I guess people would say caved. Um, and she actually did make a post on her Instagram and then everybody started hearing about it along with others too. Yeah. Um, and then I remember being like full circle moment. I was like, oh, so this is the thing that they were talking about. And then I looked into it because, again, that's how influencing works. That's how marketing works. Right. And I was like, and then I got to knowing that this is another uh, instance of uh, police brutality and injustice and injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. So, yeah. you know, I'm going to read it, a little bit from uh, Deseret uh, News here, uh, just in case folks have no idea what we're talking about. It says a new grassroots movement to end police brutality has caught the attention of the United States, celebrities and the entire world. And it's only going to grow. The hashtag NSARS campaign began in 2017 when Nigerian activities looked to end the federal police force, which is called Special Anti-Robbery Squad. And this is uh, a according to the uh, Washington Post there. So, yeah, you know, when you're talking about the fatigue of, you know, another protest, uh, another thing, it's not just another protest, but it's another protest specifically dealing with um, police brutality. And I have to say, Jonathan, the little videos I've seen, they over there not taking it. I mean, buildings burning down, stuff being um, looted and, and, and destroyed. And I feel like I always have to come on here and say, well, I'm not um, uh, promoting violence. But, you know, what else is supposed to be done? There, there was a story about this special police force where it was caught on camera. They dragged two people um, out of a hotel and shot one right there on like executed one right there on the street. What is supposed to be the response to something like that? Right. And I think that that was the event that kicked it off. Mm -hmm. um, that was almost like their version of you know, George Floyd right. was over here because just like you say, you see all of these videos and buildings burning and stuff. I'm sure the rest of the world saw Minneapolis. Yep. Um, and then subsequently everywhere else. Um, and you know, thought the same thing about us and there has been great movement. And I think we'll talk about that later in terms of what's being demanded by various organizations. Now that, um, a lot of folks have, uh, committed to doing better, but that's a whole thing that we didn't talk about in the pre-show that, you know, I might just rant on somewhere. Else. I'll find a place to talk about sure. but commitments that that Black Lives Matter wave of everybody saying one thing. And now we're in the fall and it's like, can we cash a check? Right. right. What are we going to do? Right. What was actually going to happen? What was the plan? Because y'all were saying all this back in May and June. Did you even start a plan? 
Hmm. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> you mentioned the uh, celebrities. I'm, I'm going to read uh, Beyonce's quote here. She said, I am heartbroken to see the senseless brutality taking place in Nigeria. There has to be an end to SARS. We have been working on partnerships with youth organizations to support those protesting for change. We are collaborating with coalitions to provide emergency health care, food and shelter to our Nigerian sisters and brothers. We stand by you. Now, Jonathan, you talk a lot about, you know, words, empty words. But if we want to zoom in on Beyonce specifically, you know, she has um, in these past years, you know, since formation at the very least, really um, put action behind pro-blackness, um, pro-diaspora. You know, we can talk about the Blackest King, which she did over there um, in Nigeria. Do you think uh, those words from, from, from Queen Bee are, you know, something that we actually need to hold on to? Or, or would you consider this um, sort of vapid and, and, and not much there? Well, I mean, in her words, she says what she's already done. And that's the the beauty of the craft of Shade is that... Bringing your receipts with you? <laughs> yeah, she brought the receipts with her before she even committed to doing anything. She didn't even have to say anything. She'd been working in the background. And because people were pressuring her and bullying her and doing all this, she's like, y'all, I've already done this. Right, right. Now, if we want to talk about uh, Beyonce and her evolution, like, I'm not the the one to talk about. It. Like, I don't know where she was before, <laughs> sure. where she was after. I can only speak as an outsider looking in. But like you said, when formation happened, a lot of people collectively were like, oh, OK, she's not sitting on the sidelines. She's not trying to be uh, this this type of celebrity that's not going to say anything. And at the uh, detriment of her, I wouldn't say her career, but like a lot of numbers of fans from a certain side of folks you know mm -hmm. if you know what i'm saying read right. between the lines right but um but she pressed on and then she really kept with the idea of representing her blackness so lemonade and then including all uh, well including a lot of the mothers of slain black folks by the police in that uh work and then black is king now that's a whole other um discussion separate from this idea that has uh, this very valid criticism that has come up of folks like Beyonce and other people that were fans of Black Panther, that are fans of Black Panther and that type of uh, African mysticism yeah. that kind of elevate the more mystical elements of our Black culture right. or our Black heritage from Africa. Meanwhile, folks in Africa and all the countries of Africa are just like, what are y'all doing? Like, you're basically cosplaying us. Like, we're real people. We have cities and blah, 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 blah. So that's a whole other conversation. And it is a valid criticism of Beyonce. But to keep it within the realm of what you're asking me about, um, you know, her words, I feel like she already has been doing the work. And but, you know. Yeah, but what, what you're touching on, though, that, you know, are black Americans culturally appropriating, you know, folks from the motherland or whatever. My art and, and this is no shade for real. I know I say that a lot, but this is for real. No shade of uh, the, the uh, colonialism has has taken hold just as strong there. We were talking about um, uh, China and, and them going into Africa and and, and ripping them of, of their resources. But we also just have to consider that when you go to court in many of these West African countries, they're still wearing the powder wigs and and going to church and, and Christianity and, and all that sort of stuff. So I, I feel like, you know, that that exploration into that African mysticism, that what what is traditionally African benefits the whole diaspora 
diaspora for us to really understand the extent of colonialism and, and, and how that's taken uh, shape over the world. That is a very interesting point. Uh, it's almost as if to say that, and I'm just repeating what I interpreted from what you just said. It's like black folks were taken from Africa during that horrible time that was the Atlantic slave trade and then put into a new land and developed their own culture. Um, and that's why, you know, Garrett and I have historically argued over the words black American versus African American. Right, right. I don't know where you stand now, but back in the day, you were the one. I don't know. I won't. I won't pull the receipts <laughs> like that. I'll just say that we had we used to fight a lot about this. You're not gonna pull in a my very, report. <laughs> no. Um, but uh, you know. So anyway, let me finish this. Um, so black folks, Atlantic slave trade now in the United States, and have developed their own specific culture. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Africans looking like y'all are y'all. You are not us. So stop appropriating us. Stop hyping us up in this very like almost legendary way we have we continued to live and we still continue to live but the people who are producing those words are the ones that have been colonized and still wear powdered wigs and do this that and the other right and but then it also begs the question what would africa have been like like the continent as a whole had it not been pillaged and you know like how would technology have helped develop africa just as all of the asia's have right. developed right right you know and they weren't really colonized by white folks except for save a few places like india <laughs> i mean that's a really big one right, <laughs> controls right, like right. it has a lot of population but or you know what i'm saying there's still the places spanish and stuff child don't even i'm filipino <laughs> so like okay so there in asia you have a lot of different examples of what could have been and what did happen right thanks to colonization so like japan was not colonized china i mean japan tried to colonize everybody right look we're not getting into all that i'm sure you all can edit this down but well anyway I'm, I'm saying that it's interesting to think of what africa would have been like had it gone the way of some of those other nations that were not colonized and then what it would have looked like and how they would have been talking about black folks because you know here here's an interesting thing that i just learned um, did you know in Japan, I'm sure I'm sure you might have known this, um, Japan, your citizenship is not determined by the fact that you were born on the land of Japan. It is determined by if you have Japanese blood and your Japanese blood has registered you into their family tree. And so you could have been born in France. And if you want to claim your Japanese citizenship, even though you've never been to Japan, as long as you have the blood... You can claim that if you want it. And I don't know if it's specific to um, Japan, I, but I know that sort of rule um, is uh, in place in a lot of Caribbean nations, not only the blood, but the father's blood. And I'm not sure if they do that over in Japan, but they, they mm. even break that down. But, you know, uh, quickly going back to, your, you know, black American and African American, what, I, what I tend to use these days is Afro American, you know, because we talk about Afro Cubans, we talk about Afro Brazilians, Afro Venezuelans. So I like to use the phrase um, Afro American. But when you talk about what if they had um, never snatched us from the cradle, that's something that Wayne Shorter is going to say uh, in the third movement, snatched from the cradle. Um, I, I think we sort of wrap our minds around, you know, still the conditioning of what 
uh, a Western society looks like. So maybe there wouldn't have been skyscrapers and computers and X, Y, and Z, but that doesn't mean the culture Why not? wouldn't be rich. Well, that doesn't mean the culture wouldn't be rich, and that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have other things that are, are equally innovative. I think we're just so used to seeing the world and thinking about the world through that Western lens that we think of Western development as, you know, success and, 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 and what's viable. And, and we don't really consider what else could be without all of this capitalism and industry and, and that sort of thing. I just think that Africa as a continent and all the countries within would have evolved naturally. Like, because again, if you look at some of those other places that were not colonized, they also developed things like skyscrapers. You mentioned skyscrapers. Right. Like, I think that that's just par for the course. The the but it's it's in the DNA of how that is created, or like in that country. Because one last thought, where I realize this without realizing it, if you've ever seen the 1998 film Rush Hour, mm-hmm. there I think they are somewhere in like Hong Kong, and. There's this moment where Jackie Chan is like hanging from a skyscraper, but it's under construction. But the construction site is the scaffolding is made of bamboo. And I was like, oh, like they're building a skyscraper, but they're using bamboo as a scaffolding. Mm -hmm. So like that, you know, versus all the scaffolding I see here in New York City here in 2020. But like this was 1998. I still feel like, oh, this was the Chinese way of building or this is the Hong Kong way of building. Um. A skyscraper. At least as depicted in that movie, maybe they were just trying to drive the point. Maybe it was okay, just a stereotype. We're, we're in <laughs> right. Asia, you know. <laughs> but in I, Asia, they use bamboo. <laughs> but 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 anyway. So and, and we we got way off of the um, in SARS. But I will have a link um, in the description of this and on the Triloquy website uh, for more information about in SARS. There are uh, ways to uh, donate and to contribute. But let's um, all uh, raise awareness on that, Jonathan. You're you're bringing up um, uh, rush out. Hour, of course, reminds me of one of my favorite musical performances of all time. You remember when that little Chinese girl was singing that Mariah Carey in the backseat? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a little bit of that transition. Okay, so from the motherland to where you are over on the globe, Jonathan, the next uh, accidental I wanted to bring in, I'm going to put a nice little flat next to this. Uh, the title of it is come from it comes from classicfm.com. It says Met Opera's musicians haven't been paid since April. Now, a third have left New York. So, Jonathan, before we get specifically into um, the Met, um, I've just been hearing, you know, on the street that folks by and large are leaving New York City. There are even folks who have described all those rich buildings on Park Avenue as half empty. So, you know, even the rich people are, are, are leaving. What's your perspective on um, COVID's impact on the population of New York City? That is a you said we could say anything we want on say here, right? So that is a right-wing conspiracy theory lie. Every time you hear on these debates and stuff, and you know who is talking about New York City is a ghost town. It, we are th- surviving and thriving. There are a lot of people here right now. Yes, some people moved out, mainly the rich, 
they have vacated the premises and it's these luxury buildings that are empty but there's still plenty of people out here looking for roommates there are still people moving around there are folks on the trains it's vibrant folks are wearing their masks and washing their hands what, so what's kept um, you in new york city after all because you you've almost hit the 10-year mark making yourself an official new yorker right right by someone's i don't even know who's standard that is but i, I wendy go williams with it. say that but <laughs> if wendy williams said it then i'll go along with it fine <laughs> hallelujah even though she lives How in new do? jersey doesn't she probably because she can't afford to live over there either hell <laughs> <laughs> but but, but didn't yeah, you what? say you saw her at palm springs one time no i saw her over in southern california i was uh at a place called idlewild up in the mountains and she right and, and she waved she at me and said how you doing how you doing uh, <laughs> but anyway uh what, what's kept you in new york for so long the promise that it will hopefully, I mean, unless you believe, if you believe, if, okay, what I believe is that it will bounce back and it will be the happening place again. Now, if you don't believe then that, that, then that means that you believe that this thing is going to take us all over and life ain't never going to be anywhere near the same. I'm not one of those people that is saying, I want to go back to quote normal. Yeah. I am saying that the new normal will still have this place being a happening place and i moved here because it's a happening place yeah now i will say that as of this week i my spirit has been tugging at me and kind of whispering in my ear saying you know i would rather live in a big house and that's okay that it's not in new york city but i'm not entertaining that i'm not entertaining that kind of talk right now so well i excuse me i sort of uh fell in love with the idea of, and we're going to talk about the Met musicians here in a second, but I, I sort of fell in love with the idea of living in one of these towns, uh, like I told you, a two, maybe two and a half hour train ride into Grand Central whenever I just need to be in the city. Uh, I've, I've worked with um, uh, the uh, youth programs at uh, Carnegie Hall, and they have uh, places set up up there and like purchase. And, and what are some of the, I forget where I was staying the last time I was in New York and saw you, but Terrytown, yeah, pl- Sleepy place, Hollow, yeah, pl- Long places Island. like that. I mean, could you see yourself doing, doing something like that? Maybe it's still New I'm, York. I mean, yeah, I guess it's like, but I don't know. If I'm going to do that, then I might as well move back to like. Whitehaven or <laughs> He's Cordova. talking about Memphis for people who don't know Whitehaven. <laughs> yeah, the, the suburbs of any old town where it's not a million dollars to live in a house. But at the same time, you know, even if I lived in those places, it's still not a 15-minute car ride or a hour train ride into the city of the world right. where Beyonce is holding a concert or something. So, like, I'm here specifically because you can be walking down the street and then get into something and be like, oh, this is cute. Like, you can't do that anywhere else. That's why I love New York. Anywhere else you have to own a car and you also right. have to be moving somewhere with a purpose. You don't just happen upon things. Yeah. Here you can take a walk and then you might find a cute little bar or a store and be like, oh, I want to spend time here. Like, it's a pedestrian lifestyle. Well, I, I think so. I think that actually gets us into, you know, the Met musicians, because, you know, one of the things that folks love uh, going and living in New York for is, you know, all of the live music and that sort of thing, including going mm-hmm. to see the, the Met opera. Um, I, uh, I I just I quickly searched. I just did a, a Google search average Met musician pay. And from WQXR.org, you know, your uh, uh, local uh, New York classical station, it says the average full time orchestra member earns two hundred hundred thousand dollars now this is now this is from uh, a couple years ago but with inflation and the way they do i'm sure it's only gone up i i grew up you know uh in music school and that sort of thing 
uh, with the idea and folks telling me, well, the only way to really make some money, money is to practice and try to get in the Met because you can earn $250,000 plus, you know, playing your, your instrument there. But as I mentioned from this article from Classic FM, you know, they haven't been uh, getting that paycheck since April and a lot of them are moving from the uh, city as well. So being um, a, a New Yorker, Jonathan, you know, maybe you have a clearer perspective on um, what the Met stands for and represents. When I think about the Met Opera, I think about old white ladies in their fur coats and their pearls who have had dinner at Lincoln Center beforehand. And now they go in and here, you know, just this institution that does not serve um, folks like us at all. Hell, doesn't serve most of, of New York City. So, you know, my question for you is, do you care that these musicians are out of work and out of pay? I mean, for me, I do care that musicians are out of work and out of pay. Um, if I mean, let me backtrack. Let me re- erase those that statement and say that I do care. Are, well, let me ask you, are they working? Because I feel like the Met shut down for like this season and the next season. Right. right? So Yeah. So they are, they are just. So then they don't need to get paid because they're not working. Right. But, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic and like the industry is suffering as a whole. I, I hope I wish those people well and I hope that they can find some kind of gig or something. But I don't know. Are these the type of people that would involve engage in the gig culture? I'm more familiar with the Broadway folks. I have a lot of Broadway, a lot of, a lot of theater friends, a lot of pit musicians, uh, friends like that. And they are they're hustling out here. They're they're putting together benefits and galas and online Zoom things and having people pay twenty five dollars here and there or whatever. But like I need to ask you, like, are they just expecting to get paid money? while they're not doing anything? Well, you have to understand that the Met Orchestra is an institution just like the New York Philharmonic is or LA Phil, Chicago. So these people, you know, they're, this is their full-time jobs. And, and many of them have tenor, uh, tenure in the, um, uh, in the Met uh, orchestra. So, you know, th- this is their, their job. They aren't out here on the gig culture and, and doing all that. They're just going to work every day. So like so many other people, you know, in and outside of music, their place of work is just shut down and they're not, and they're not getting paid. And, and now even folks, you know, in the highest echelons of, of uh, income and, and surely that's not the higher echelons of income in New York City, but you know, $200,000 sound, you know, uh, pretty, uh, pretty comfortable to me but you know like like i said they're they're just not getting that anymore but like i have known people that are not in music who work in fashion Mm -hmm. who have their positions have been terminated because of the pandemic like this is a reality like folks folks's jobs are being cut so i mean i don't know what it's like in that world i'm not a professional orchestra musician but to me it's like y'all your your position hasn't even been cut yet but you're not working so it's like you should be maybe we're banking on a promise that like the industry is going to come back and so you know but like if someone's arguing that this is just me being very ignorant of how that world works maybe there's a contract or a union in place or whatever all of those things yeah so i i don't know what to say but i just know that i do have friends in the fashion industry who lost their jobs because the logical thing from my perspective and people who are not involved, I guess, with the unions and contracts is where the, the, the company has decided, you know, we're going through something. We don't have the potential to make money, which is money that we would pay you. So we have to cut your position and you're fired or you're like laid off. My, you know, these my, people still have their position. My, my heart 
for real. Now, and I know I'm coming to this with certain energy. So, you know, my, my heart definitely goes out to everyone who has been impacted um, by this pandemic. Hell, I, I don't have a, a, a nine to five, you know, right now. So, you know, I, I understand that it's to me, it's just the cultural implications, the idea that, you know, these conservatory trained musicians who probably had uh, families who, uh, if they weren't legacy musicians, had the means of getting them into these top schools and traveling to auditions and and X, Y, and Z, you know, there's that. But it's also the Mets' um, reaction to this. So um, they went to um, social media and, oh, and, they and said this, okay. Uh, it says, the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, the only world-class orchestra in America furloughed with no pay since April 1st, has been actively pursuing ways to get back to work safely with the help of scientists and engineers from Princeton University and the University of Montpelier. And it, and, and it goes on. But it's that phrase, the only world-class orchestra in America that really, you know, pushed me the wrong way. So that is very deceptive. There there are orchestras everywhere that are full. You know, my, my, uh, my, my former orchestra, the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra, they have been furloughed. The Nashville Symphony is not working, you know, but there's lots of people out here not working. But but, but the Met talking about the, you know, we're the only world-class orchestra in America furloughed with, with no pay. So, you know, so to me, that that makes me not care. Right. Is that qualification supposed to make us feel a certain kind of way towards you all not having pay when literally everyone else out here in the industry is also struggling? And and a lot of these folks lost their non $200,000 a year jobs, you know, so really trying to really trying to make it work. And I understand. Yeah, I don't know who wrote that. Why would they even put that in there like that? My, you know, this this conversation does make me ask because, again, ignorant. So I don't know how this stuff works. But um, one of the last things that I saw at the Met. Uh, because I actually do frequent the Met. Thank you very much. You frequent uh, the Met. Okay, come on, money. <laughs> only when it's something I come care on about. Um, I will. I will uh, donate part of that salary for things that I truly care about, and and do it fighting. Right. Yeah. We can talk about that. But the last thing I saw was Porgy and Bess, which I fought with people on the internet about. I was like, these tickets should not be four hundred dollars. It's a it's a opera about a bunch of black people, and no black people can afford this. Period. And then, the, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but people that were very involved, black folks that were very involved that I are in my circle with that production were like, it is the right thing because it takes a lot to put on an opera and this is for us. And I was like, so if it's for us, then y'all should be giving black folks discounted tickets. That's what well, I'm you saying. can stream it. Oh, but oh, well, oh, but, oh, that, that's that's like the colored waiting room, is it not? Right, it's a separate but equal. Right. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm like, I want a good seat to see the black <laughs> opera. Okay. Here I am shelling out five hundred dollars to get a good seat in the balcony, like not the balcony, but like the the, the mezzanine, the dress maybe? circle. Oh, sure, the dress circle. Mm. I like the dress circle. Did you wear your dress? I didn't wear a dress. <laughs> um, but child, that place. But I say all this to say. I, like are the black folks that I saw on stage there like the black the chorus that made up Porgy and Bess are they like like what's their finance like not finance their employment situation right. with this house 
that they're probably even more dire than the orchestra members because those orchestra members do have a contract. Many of them do have tenure. So they have a job at some point to return to if, if the Met comes back. I don't think we should, you know, assume that it's coming back. But, you know, those chorus members and we haven't even talked about costumers and other stagehands and, you know, but 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 we have them up here talking about, you know, the only world class orchestra in America who's going without. I'm not going to get on my George Gershwin uh, <laughs> soapbox today, but um, but I, I, I want to know more, Jonathan, about your experience at this Porgy and Best performance. My thing was you have all these black folks on stage, you know, you have the visual of all these black people, but what does the orchestra look like? What does the conductor look like? You know, and, and what does the audience look like? But maybe we'll start there. What, what did the audience look like? Did it look more colorful than, than usual? More colorful than usual doesn't mean a lot of color, but (laughs) (laughs) that's all I'm going to say about that. Because I went to also the Kathleen Battle uh, comeback tour concert at the Met, which was about 60 minutes late starting. But (laughs) um, uh, there were a lot of colored folks there. We were we show it was like a it was like an R. Kelly concert. Um, oh shit! I, you mentioned I, him. I don't even know why I said that. The reason I said that was because R. Kelly. Okay, because R. Kelly is problematic story. as his opera. No, 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 no. Well, yes, we could say that, but I'm going to explain myself really quick because I don't want anybody canceling me saying, "Oh, he's a fan of R. Kelly." No. I live near the Atlantic Barclays Center in downtown Brooklyn, and one day I was walking through there to get to Whole Foods, and there were a lot of, like, 50- and 40-year-old black people dressed to the nines as if there was a club. You know Memphis black folks and, like, going out. Grown and sexy. Grown and sexy. That's the phrase right there. (laughs) And I was like, what is going on right now? Like, why are all these people here? (laughs) And then someone told me it's an R. Kelly concert, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So... Take that crowd, copy and paste it, but then also add the layer of opera. So it's more like a church service. And I've been to the Met when it was full of us in that capacity. Um, so Porgy and Bess wasn't like that. It was. It's still a whole bunch of old white people paying $600, $1,200 to get the good seats down there, watching a bunch of black folks sing and sang well. Oh, yeah, we're not but, saying that uh, they didn't sing well, but they're just singing white oh, yeah. people's music, a white man's music. That's my thing. Oh, that's right. You, yeah. You said you weren't going to get on your Gershwin <laughs> soapbox, but true enough, there are, you know, in my realm of choral music, because I didn't mention at the beginning of this that I also sing for the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. Amen. Um, amen. <laughs> um, but like, you know, in, in choral music, I am of the belief that... Um, I won't say I am of the belief. I'll just say we, you and I share sentiments on music by white people that is made in the black style. So in choral music, it's like Negro spirituals arranged by white people. I'm just like, okay, this is interesting. Um, all right. Well, we'll, oh, beautiful gowns. Well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> beautiful gowns. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, we'll we'll get into that topic specifically um, in in the second movement. But you know, just um, to to wrap this little bit of it up um good luck to all of those um six figure um earning 
musicians out there uh, in the Met uh, Orchestra. I don't think y'all's rollout was very appropriate. Um, I'm not going to the Met anytime soon because I don't have $400, $500 to go listen to any of that. And you know, Jonathan, what we didn't mention, um, they have planned to come back uh, in the fall of 2021 with the Terrence Blanchard opera, you know, and that will be the first time that a, a an opera by a black person has been on that stage, you know, a hundred and I think 178 years or something crazy. And now is the time uh, a person had to be killed. Y'all had to be all out of work. People had to have the conversation of y'all being irrelevant for, for y'all to get some, um, uh, some black music on that stage. So, you know, I'm not here for it. Uh, if I come back, uh, the, the next time I'm in New York city, I think I'm gonna spend $400 doing something else than sitting up in there and listening to them. Uh, well, you know, uh, it's almost like the hunger games, uh, in reverse. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. What What did she say? What did she always say? May the odds be ever in your favor. Right. Yeah. So shout out to the Met musicians. Here's one of their uh, performances to transition us here. Okay, Jonathan, so um, the final thing I wanted to cover in this first movement, uh, you know, we are very, 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 very close to this historic election. And um, I don't even have to pull up a specific ad campaign or, or article, but the whole go vote energy has been stronger than it has ever been, at least um, in, in from, from my perspective. Um, question number one, have, have you voted yet? Did you do early voting or anything? I So early, as of the recording of this, uh, early voting in New York started yesterday, okay. so October 24th. I set my alarm. I went out to my voting thing, the little place for early voting, which is down the street. Um, and I had a collection of Instagram videos of me walking. Around, and you know the blocks here are not, right. you know, you got short blocks, and then you got the, the long way avenues, of blocks. Right. Streets and avenues. So my precinct, the bu- the uh, the line went out the door then down to the end of the first corner of the block then it went to the it went to the other end of the block then it went to the avenue corner of the block so it wrapped around all four sides of the block i was like you know what i'll come back during the week when cuz this was the first day it was saturday yeah. but i have never seen anything like it i saw on twitter that um you know for young voters 18 to 25 uh compares i think this was an nbc statistic so you know Take it or leave it. Uh, take it or leave it. But um, 2016, they were talking about the same demographic, 18 to 25. And like the numbers were somewhere in like the 40,000s. Right. Yeah. And then as of like one day or like maybe a week of early voting across the country, the numbers were like in the 300,000s for that demographic. And I'm like, so folks are really out here doing this. I will get to my early voting. I'm not waiting until Election Day. I will I will do it and it looks like a lot of people are mobilized and galvanized to do something. I, I don't know what, but they, they want to do something. What do you think the end um result of all of this is gonna be? So let's say, okay, um let, let let let's say, you know, week <laughs> after next or you know, or, or whenever we, you know, get the results. It's probably not gonna come for weeks and weeks and weeks, but you know, whenever we get these results, let's say Joe Biden 
has won and all of these people who have been energized um they're they still ain't got no job you know they 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 are still dealing with the uh police and they bullshit you know not much is is being changed what do you think that um reality and this is again can uh uh, uh assuming that biden is going to win what do you think that reality is going to look like you, you don't think the children are going to be mad because you know how the kids are well, I mean, that's been one of my number one things that I've been talking about for ever since before the Democratic primaries. Like, since we're naming names now, Joe Biden was not my first choice. He was not first my choice second, was, third, yeah. or fourth, or fifth choice. Uh, and the thing that a lot of us have had to come to realize, and I think the same thing happened with Bernie Sanders in 2016. Like, a lot of people were like, this is not my, Hillary was not my choice, blah, blah, blah. We, But you saw what happened when people got mad and then they decided, well, I'm just not participating. Right. Right. Well, at least that was one factor of it. And then white women were another factor. Uh, but 50, uh, 54% of them anyway. Right. 54% of white. Well, let's not not all white people here because, you know, because um, it's your show. You can say whatever <laughs> you want. Uh, but um, I'll just say that uh, folks need to realize that this would only be the first step toward taking a change. Even like we're still going to have like putting Biden in place just means that you're taking a step into actually doing some kind of work to fix this problem. Um, it doesn't mean that overnight, all of a sudden everything is going to be good because we didn't get to this 2016 situation overnight. Right. I know a lot of people out there think that it just happens, things just started going downhill in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. But I always say, anytime I talk about this, go back to Saturday Night Live, the Saturday after 2016 election, and watch the Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock skit uh, called Election Day or something like that, mm -hmm. where in, in that skit, it's Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock at their white friend's house watching the election results. And, it, you know, they're like so sure that Hillary is going to win. And as the night goes on, um, it seems less and less likely. Meanwhile, Chappelle and Rock, they, they've always been knowing. And the end of the skit is like, this is the biggest, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in the United States. And of course, two black and men. And his whole like, slavery in the, in the textbook. <laughs> LOL. Like, really? <laughs> this is how a lot of us felt um, during that time, like. People really thought America went downhill in 2016, as if 1619 didn't happen, as if slavery didn't happen, as if the Chinese exclusion, as if Japanese internment didn't happen, as if imperialism didn't happen. Like, come on, y'all. Yeah, yeah. It's all as about if Black Lives Matter and all the hashtag names didn't haven't been happening. Rodney, you know, so <sighs> y'all who think this way that get Biden getting elected all of a sudden means that you're going to have a job. No, it doesn't. It means that it's the beginning of the work. Right. Exactly. Hold him accountable because a lot of people didn't even want him. And they, because he's not radical enough. And so to those people, I would say, you know, a lot of those people are, have already responded saying, well, are very skeptical. We can't hold them accountable. We can't hold that. Well, what can you do? Like, 
keep pressing, keep that fire going. Yeah, yeah. Once, once he's in office, and if uh, and we haven't talked at if all he's about, in office, right? Because we haven't at all talked about the um, electoral college. You know, all of those people wrapped around that building in, in New York is one thing. You know, um, but that doesn't impact. And, and I'm sure you know Biden will win New York. But when you talk about these battleground states, you know, Minnesota being one of them. You know. Um, if 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 X amount of votes, you know, tip it one way, it's, there's no such thing, at least as, as of now, of splitting um, a state's electoral college votes. And so anyway, we'll just we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. And um, I'm a hold my breath. And um, I guess we'll see. Here's a uh, I'm, I, you, you mentioned that Dave Chappelle and, uh, and Chris Rock uh, uh, joint from a, a few years ago. Here's a little bit of that uh, to get us into this second movement. Oh, my God. I think America is racist. Oh, my God. You know, I remember my great-grandfather told me something like that. But, you know, he was like a slave or something. Okay, so um, movement two here, talking about a uh, few pieces of uh, uh, music. Uh, most of your treats, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, a few tricks and treats, you know. So I'll, I'll, I'll say these are uh, some of the treats that uh, me and Jonathan are going to share with you, some music that deal with some of our history together. But uh, before we completely leave the whole conversation of politics and everything, I was in my um, in my new music folder. You know, I, I subscribe to new music things all over um, the, the Internet. And one of the uh, things that I saw uh, yesterday was a new, at least new to me, um, Kanye West track. So um, first and foremost, Jonathan, what do you think about Kanye running for president? Because he made the ballot here. Like in, in, in my mail in ballot, Kanye West's name is on it. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. And he's going to get votes. People are going to vote for that nigga. Excuse me. I, I see. You can say whatever you want. Um, uh, I saw Kanye West on his, I think, the Yeezus tour mm-hmm. here in Madison Square Garden, New York. It was oh, so you funny went. how that happened. Oh, well, I you mean, I didn't pay for the ticket. I didn't pay for the ticket. It was actually through work. We were entertaining a customer and my... Uh, it's, a, it's a very conservative company. Mm-hmm. And so... Because I am who I am, they're like, we can't find any salespeople that want to go to this concert and host. Would you like to go, <laughs> Kanye West? I was like, so I'm here there with my very like conservative Chinese boss, who doesn't know it. They're smoking weed in the Madison Square Garden. Yeah. <laughs> People in the suite next to us are offering her some. She's like, what is this? I'm like, no, don't touch it. <laughs> but anyway, I saw Con- this is the time when Kanye West. Like, I mean, folks had been knowing that something was wrong, but like, this was when he was taking up hours of concert time to rant and rave. Right. And talk about stuff and so i got to see that firsthand then you know this whole president thing and um his his campaign rally i watched that where he broke down crying when he mentioned his mom i'm like look there is something there he i don't know if he has therapists i don't know if he's gone to therapy i have never been to therapy but i would like to go i need to do this i know that it is something that is not talked about in our community that is the black community a lot mm-hmm. um so you know I wish him well, but as for this latest stunt, because I feel it's a stunt, nobody is going to take this seriously. Um, And I really hope that he does not have a negative impact on the election. 
I I think, you know, I I won't say unfortunately, fortunately, I just think the fact is, is that he's going to get some of these votes. So, I mean, I'm not going to stand on my platform and back Kanye West as a politician. But let's just face it. He's a name that we all know musically. He really innovated hip hop. If you, you know, especially in a contemporary sense, if you are uh, familiar with his body of work. So I don't know. To me, this tune, uh, Na Na Na, is a, I don't know, it's cute to me. So here's here's a, a, a little excerpt. Alright, so Jonathan, you want to jump into um in our pre-production, you were talking about, and in the first movement, talking about uh, spirituals uh, a little bit. Expound more on that, and and specifically, you know, um, you know, for your being in the choral world, white choirs singing spirituals. You know, I'll never forget uh, at my previous job, the first time I had a, a Moses Hogan uh, uh, composition on my playlist. It was the um, Concordia Choir, Concordia College Choir here in Minnesota, and boy, it was clean and tight. My soul's been anchored in the Lord, you know, <laughs> talk to me about <laughs> your face. I wish people could see your face. Talk to me, <laughs> talk to me about these, um, spirituals and the respect that we're not putting on them. Uh, it's such a complicated conversation because like, if you look at the spirituals and how they were first, uh, spread throughout the country and made into pu- like in, into public knowledge you have to acknowledge the hbcu tradition that was started with fisk university um and their touring choir right the jubilee singers mm-hmm. going around and singing songs first kind of proving to white people like oh we can sing the classical greats we can do this and folks were not donating but then uh it was when they started singing the spirituals that folks started throwing money and they were like oh we really like this like wow and of course fisk jubilee singers and other hbcus weren't going around singing to like the magas of the 1866 right right? they were singing to like the liberals of the 1866 or like that era Mm -hmm. the ones that liked that wanted to like black people so they were singing (laughs) they, they were singing these negro spirituals and then um, you know, that's that's where it first started blooming and becoming more public knowledge. Then you've got Harry Burley, the father of the spiritual, yep. who uh, is I think he's the first to put it down on sheet music in a solo repertoire. Right. So now you've got it's now, quote, accessible. Anybody can do it. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. But even back then, it's just like it's this ideology of like, this is our music and we need to share it with the world and people should be um, doing it. And that's bonus points for you. Right. So then we exist for the rest of that century. And it's not until the early 2000s, I would say, I think that um, Moses Hogan comes along. Yeah. And it's because of Dr. Andre Thomas, who orders like. I don't know how many thousands of copies of like one of his spirituals at an ACDA convention uh-huh. that then it blows up. And it's like, now we've got like the cinematic film score type treatment of the spiritual Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And like all this time, all this time that the hundred years from the early 1900s to the two thousands. And then even now you've got 
it's it is a very nuanced conversation because you've got people that are like this is good for us this is good for our culture and then you've got other people who are like this is for us and it's not for anybody else to do and and i've been since you've known me i've been on both sides of that and my mind is constantly at war with like should we be doing this like where i currently stand is it's 2020 Mm -hmm. and if you want for if you want for the purposes of education to show your students how something worked in music then there are youtube videos right right um because i i really cringe when i look back at my earlier opinions like undergrad and i think oh this music was accessible and like oh it's for everyone and like a lot of people living today who are all very respectable and are much more educated than i am on the topic um and who are icons in the negro spiritual and i'm talking about people at the top who who teach i'm not naming names but if you know anything about the spirituals then you know who they are they are i mean i can't imagine them being of any other part of the argument but this music is quote for everyone and everyone should be learning it and so they should all be performing it that's their right yeah they 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 that's their opinion they are the leaders in the industry but it's a it's an argument that happens within blackness not just with music but like how much are you hair and I don't want to say these terms in reference to these leaders. I don't want to mean it this way, but it sounds very shady. But to me and others who think on this side, it's like, how much are you going to shuck and jive? Right. Like, it's almost like shucking and jiving because you are an authority. And you see how this works. And then behind closed doors, you'll ask a lot of these people questions like well how what do you it's like child they can't you know blah blah blah, two and four and they just don't get like well then the church sway you know the the the, church sway the the rehearsals for that choreography that are required often they swear they need sheet music i'm just like there's a lot i'm I'm trying to say a lot without saying a lot and that's why it probably comes across as very cryptic and unintelligible but um, I mean, my, my thing, if I may get into a specific, um, I think about the um, diction and the style that is required to sing the spirituals. You know, let's let's go. We were talking about the Met earlier. Let's talk about the very specific technique of, of singing in those spaces and then pronouncing words oftentimes in uh, in other languages. I feel like we don't apply that respect to the um, the spirituals and other black music. So I, I'm not sitting here uh, saying that the white folks can't sing the Moses Hogan's and the H.T. Berlays and all this stuff as much as I'm saying put some energy into actually you know getting the style correct but then of course when when you see a but it a, comes a stage, across as performative when I'm you do that as well when you when you're looking up on stage and you see an choir of of only white people with the you know in apostrophes and the you know however you want to you know translate and talking about Lottie and throwing right, their hands up right, and yeah, falling that, over that, and that praise. seems a little weird too so um, I mind my business over here on my instrumental side of things. Because <laughs> all y'all have to do is play the notes right. and bend a note here and there. <laughs> but, you know, but, but I mean, but how, how do we do, deal with that, John? You're saying, and, and you know, I'm, I'm just going to ask you point blank. Do you think that all white choruses uh, or mostly white, including the one that you sing with up there in New York, the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, should y'all just be leaving uh, the spirituals alone? I think, and this is the saving grace for me, uh, I know people like to take things out of context, but I'll say this. 
I think that white folks, composers, arrangers, um, and whoever else, they should be, especially in this time of uh, 2020, where we were writing checks and saying Black Lives Matter and all of this, I think that the work that could be done, okay, follow me here, is new works and commissions and compositions that honor these people that you say deserve the respect. It does not have to be in a stereotypical genre. It doesn't need to be a jazz piece. It doesn't need to be a Negro spiritual. It can be a very beautiful, large composition, contemporary orchestral, uh, you know, something where the text is something black or the whether it's pulled from a quoted text or it's original poetry or whatever something that focuses on black people but that general choral folks i almost said white folks but i will say general choral and instrumental people can do like the public domain and i don't mean that in the public like copyright sense i mean like the type of music that we are used to doing in classical or orchestral or choral settings you know negro spirituals and everything else that's all still considered like another genre like you always go to look for that but you have standards and grades and certain genres fall into that i would like to see something for instance that sounds like an eric whitaker piece because that's where music has got choral music has gone in the last 20 years yeah. I, but but that is not a negro spiritual but does talk about the honoring of black folks it's all of that to say that do you, am I making sense? No, yeah, that, that that makes perfect sense, and 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 I think uh, the point that uh, really strikes a chord with me is, you know, what you said earlier, supporting the actual people that you allege to uh, be aligned with. There are whole black women and whole black men and whole black trans people out here who are writing music that these that, that these folks could, you know, in, engage. You know, if and even if the choirs can't meet because of COVID. Um, find your little dollars and commission them to write something so that maybe when y'all do come back, you have something to, uh, to to show your support. But but that, as you said, also isn't up there shucking and jiving and appropriating and, and X, Y and Z. Right. That's that's the that's the solution, I think, is just put these dollars into these people that are doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if 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 the people. Um, want to hear an example of what you mean about, you know, what, when it may be the spiritual or the contemporary, what, what, what piece of music, what piece of choral music do you want to point the people to in, in conjunction with this conversation? Ooh, that was, that's a very good question. Uh, for now, I mean, I don't know. This is when we talk about this, it's like, well, where's the money going? Right. And I, I like to try to make sure that, you know, the clicks and stuff are going to, you know, the black clicks folks. and exactly, you know, you, that's funny you say that because, you know, I'm the one who will talk about a thing and be like, I'm not posting the video because I don't want it to <laughs> <Right>. get or <laughs> the article because I don't want them to. get. So I'm like, that's kind of I thought we were just sharing stuff that was getting us through the pandemic. Garrett. I thought we were just doing that. I didn't know that I was going to have to pull out something that um, that was an example of this because I really haven't given it that kind of thought. I know there are things that are by black composers and sung by black folks mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i mean so like if you want to give spotify clicks to something which spotify is not black owned but like if you want to give credibility or credence or popularity to something i've been listening to the abyssinian mass jazz at lincoln center uh winton marcellus did this 
And it is an entire mass with all the movements of a traditional mass, but set in a black church setting. And my favorite tracks from that are uh, the processional, when the choir comes out to go to the choir stand. It's called We Are On Our Way. Amen. Uh, then the anthem right before the end of the first half. Uh, it's Glory to God. It's it, All of this stuff is like gospel, but jazz. Like Saturday night, straight up boogie woogie type jazz, but with a gospel setting. And to a lot of y'all out there, you're like, wait, I thought they were the same thing. No, they're not. Just like spirituals and gospel music are not the same thing. Right, right. But um, so check that out. And then my last favorite one is uh, the recessional when the choir is walking out and it's called the glory train. And there's this one really fun part in there where, you know, they're like, the, the, the text is like, um, I'm going straight up to heaven on the glory train. And then when the choir finally gets to heaven... They're talking about all the things they see in heaven. And it's just this long list of everything from the Bible ever. <laughs> They're like, I see Ezekiel's will and Moses' staff and the trumpets of Jericho, Mary, Martha, Abraham. I'm like, child, y'all are seeing everything up there. I see So, Jonathan, I want to go ahead and um, before we get into my conversation uh, with Wayne Shorter, you know, since we've been gabbing here, uh, quickly give the people uh, the the Halloween treat. So um, the year was 2015. That was the last time I was in New York uh, for a mm -hmm. Halloween. I was dressed as uh, Jesus. You were dressed as as Moses. Um, remind me where we uh, whose party we ended up going to. We ended up going. So this was a party hosted by now two board members of the new york city gay men's course it was kind of like back then that was actually just their halloween party they've since made that into like a fundraising event for the organization but that was back in the heyday i think it was the first one ever actually oh, wow, wow. so they lived in a very beautiful brownstone as you will remember it's sherry shepherd's old brownstone mm -hmm. where, uh, her from husband, the view. where her husband was cheating on her mm. up in the and i took you up to the room where it happened <laughs> I and the bathroom i laughing <laughs> Child, she's one of those we were talking about never mind um so yes it was very fun and i also remember we were very intoxicated and then we got back to my building and there was a party going on we just walked into the party and that's the first time i ever felt old because i feel like these were all like in 2015 these were all like college student age kids right, right. throwing a party and we not that we looked out of place, but I felt out of place. Right, right, right. Because I mean, make I was, no mistake about it, we still looked young. I was out because black don't crack, but but also, <laughs> yeah, it was like college age kids, and it went. You could tell. You can always tell when the folks are being extra um, kind of tight with the alcohol, you know, because they probably had to get their big brother or they auntie or cousin or somebody to get it in the first place. But mm -hmm. um, so you know, we we went to that party and and went uh, and got back to your place over in uh, Crown. 
Zion Heights. So I'm still here dressing as Jesus, uh, dressed as Jesus Christ, being a scallywag. You know, I'm trying to find me a suitor for the evening. <laughs> and I'm trying to go to bed. Right. So you went to bed. I went out and continued to be a scallywag. I um, did what First I did. First of all, what were you thinking? <laughs> like, you can't, you know that you didn't even have a key to the apartment. But I felt like I could just call you and you would wake up. So I go back. Oh, no. So and you underestimated. I, I, I do my thing. I, I come back and the sun is coming up at this point because, you know, we was out late and X, Y, and Z. Your, the front door of your building is locked. Uh, you're not answering your phone. So dressed as Jesus Christ, you know, right, <laughs> right, like Jesus Christ rose from the grave. I was rising in the hood. I, I was rising up the the, the uh, fire escape, you know, <laughs> climbing oh the fire God. escape, trying to uh, get you to uh, unlock your uh, window or whatever, knocking, knocking, knocking. You're not waking up. So eventually, you um, you know, uh, wake up and and I come in and tell you the story, and that has forever enshrined that fire escape. I hope to never be stuck outside on a fire escape again amen <laughs> i feel like you have mentioned the fire escape without me even being on this show a couple times with scott i really feel like i have heard you talked about the fire escape before well you, you know it, it, it's, it's one of those iconic moments and I'm, i feel like i'm old enough and saved enough now to bring up my my earlier you're days. spilling your own tea on your own show is what you said so <laughs> that's the tryst portion of <laughs> what we were talking about right. tricks, tricks trills and trysts <laughs> out here being a hoe in brooklyn um i, I don't uh want to uh pass up the opportunity you know to to talk you know we're, we're talking we're in jest talking about you know being a hoe and all of that but you know i know um as um as someone who is outspoken on the importance of you know the safety of of sex and all that stuff especially uh within uh queer communities i mean do, do you want to take the opportunity to kind of you know say something to your New Yorkers or anybody else um, out there because it's one thing for me to be uh, risky and 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 meeting men at their strange homes in a strange city and you know me being lucky enough to have uh, survived that but but there's some real safety that that needs to um, be considered that as young folks you know we just tend to ignore mm, I don't know what I can say be safe uh, uh, get on prep wear condoms all that stuff and it only takes one time i am no like part of my i forgot to even mention this but a lot of my youtube uh and my uh activism is actually for hiv positive people because i am hiv positive but like i always tell people it only takes one time because i'm not even active like that and when i was infected i was not active like that it was 2014 as a matter of fact mm -hmm. and i had sex all of one time that year and that's when i got infected so do you have um, do you know uh marvell terry i met him in memphis yeah we, we are i know that name yeah he uh, i met him in uh, memphis and he was actually on triloquy uh, uh earlier in season two and one of the things he was talking about you know he was uh well first of all he was talking about how dr fauci has always been a name in those communities you know for the work he did um in hiv prevention but uh you know uh, the other thing that marvell was talking about was comparing the condom to the face mask saying you know this is an yeah easy i've been thing doing the do. same thing this is an easy i don't thing understand do. why people do not understand that and they uh, still time after time you're seeing people talk about there was a sign that was posted somewhere and it was spread around the internet and people were like you don't need to be telling people to wear their own mask stay in your own lane mind your business i'm like the fact that someone is not wearing their mask is my business because like you just said it's like the condom 
you are trying to hold in whatever it is that you have so that you're not infecting people by air around you. Yeah. It's not a barrier. It is a container. Right. And, and a lot of people, we're, what, eight, nine months into this thing now? And they still don't get that? I, I'm, I'm just perplexed are folks, at this point. Are folks, are folks in New York not wearing masks? When you go down oh, the no, street? they are. Oh, okay. I'm talking about this was the internet. I'm seeing people in other places thinking that you have to stay in your own lane. Don't tell anybody to wear a mask because it's none of your business. I'm like, yes, it is because I can wear my mask. I'm protecting you from what I may have. Right, right, right. Well, anyway, we're we're way off topic there, but listen, I don't put my business out there a whole lot. I don't I don't even like to be public. Well, I, I won't say I don't like to be public about uh, my relationship, but you know, I know how the internet is. Okay, so I like to you know make sure these days that my private life, my sexual life, is you know one thing and you know unattached to my work. But you know, I, I thought since, since since we're coming up on Halloween, you know, I don't have any uh, candy to give to the people. But here, I'll I'll, I'll spread out some of my business some so tea. they so that y'all know that I'm a, a person just like the rest of y'all. Uh, so uh, before we uh, transition here uh, into my uh, conversation with Wayne Shorter, I want to thank um, a fellow New Yorker of yours, Jonathan, my dear friend, uh, Cesar Chavetta. He lives way up there on Riverside Drive. It'd probably take you, what, an hour and a half, two hours to get up there to the Upper West Side from where you are on the train? Oh, no, it takes like 40 minutes. Now, it'll take an hour, hour and a half before I'm on my bicycle. And over the summer, I was using my bicycle a lot to go up there because on the west side, there's this beautiful path that people either walk or bike and you can bike all the way up there uninterrupted mm. i was getting it this summer yeah well uh shout out to uh, caesar for connecting me uh with wayne shorter uh what you're gonna hear um in this third movement for this opus you know because but because wayne you know talks um almost the way that he improvises, you know, just very improvisatory and and um, and, and sort of uh, spatial, I'll say. Uh, uh, Scott and I took the interview, sort of chopped it up, and I'll be um, coming in and out to uh, give some context around um, each of the little segments there. So I really hope that uh, you enjoy this conversation, and a huge uh, thank you as well to Carolina, Wayne Shorter's wife, for um, helping us facilitate this. Something told me it was over yeah. when I saw you and her talking. Something deep down in my soul. Yeah, uh, Garrett, have you heard Beyonce sing the Charlie Parker version of How High the Moon? I just wondered uh, how many people. We caught that, you know, I said, wait a minute. Remember she said that she was gonna do something about Ella Fitzgerald. Right. And then she went right into that. And I said, wait a minute. About what you're doing, what Yo-Yo Ma is doing, he's not attached to any orchestra. He's going around doing all kinds of stuff. And um, when you talked about, uh, got the Palestinian and, and, and Israeli musicians together, that kind of thing that you're doing too, that you've been involved with. I, I just saw David Byrne, the Spike Lee thing is on TV right now. A guy named David Byrne. Have you heard of him? Oh yeah, he does the documentaries. Yeah. And uh, when they showed all the pictures of, you know, say their name, say their name, all the people who have been shot and all that stuff like that. Right. 
And but those musicians being being together, I was listening to how they did what they did together. And uh, with wait a minute, I heard some rhythms in there. I said, Miles would like to play with that rhythm. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and it, it seems like the the word impossible to get musicians from different countries to do something together and not just the music, but more than a message. You're seeing with your eyes and hearing with your ears, you're seeing what what they did broke down to me. The stuff that recording A&R people used to try to corral you with, mm-hmm. how to make a hit and all that, and how to make a hit record devoid of humanity, devoid of what's going on in the world. We just want to make them, you know, but I think they, uh, they'll cross that bridge already, you know, like, uh, but not enough. Well, Spike Lee has been on it all the time, too. And, uh, and some other people. It's a big, big job that we have to do. There's been a documentary made. We worked on it for 12 years. The documentary is finished. They, they're saying it's about me and everything, but it's not really. The documentary is called Zero Gravity. And it has a lot of different stuff in there. The little boy who played in Blackish, he's in there. He's, he's playing me as a young child. Okay. And then there's a, an art cartoonist who made some uh, drawings, cartoon sequences. He passed away, by the way, too. In the cartoon. That's in there. There's um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson mm-hmm. interviewing and uh, different people, Sonny Rollins, people like that, by the way. I don't want to talk about it that much or anything like that, but I'm not, I don't know if you're going to hear about it. Uh, the Rutgers University has uh, extended the branching out through New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, and they're building a school, part of the Rutgers program. And they, uh, I got a call from Tom Carter in Washington, you know, the, the Herbie Hancock Institute and all that, which used to be the Monk Institute. And they asked the Rutgers that asked if they could name the school my name, the school of mm. shorter school of music, not wow. the school of jazz, school of music. And I have right in front of me right now. You said that this, this is some of the scores of the opera I'm working on. Oh, okay. Opera called Iphigenia, and uh, Monica from the Imani Winds was just here recently. They're going to be involved. Imani Winds. The Harlem uh, String Quartet and other musicians and singers from different places. And we've been doing, working on Zoom with Esperanza Spalding. She did the, the libretto um, loaded with, uh, it's almost like trying to lift a tree trunk when I try to lift the score up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, hearing and seeing what's going on on TV and in the world and all that. And I, I'm in a place called I call it the fun room. I don't like the word studio. Mm-hmm. Fun room. I hear stuff. And I think about writing something that uh, challenges what I'm hearing. Esperanza, she is uh, it's all about what you're talking about. So we, we're going to have this. Uh, Frank Gary, the, the architect, he's doing the setting and all that stuff. And he said one thing. How does this, this opera end? Or does it going to end? It's going to end. And we kept talking with a lot of people talking. Then he said, I think I hear the word chaotic optimism. 
chaotic optimism. <laughs> so this this is uh, the chaos and mess that we seem to be immersed in mm-hmm. is the place to find the open doors to, to find our way. I heard one sentence that kind of didn't define it, but he said, what is life? And uh, all this other stuff, well, life is this and that. It could be thought that uh, life is, a, is the story of every individual that's born. And be born as a human being is a gift. And I, I like what the, Dr. Stephen Hawking said about which came first in his book, the chicken or the egg. And he said, neither. Which came first? Neither. It's simultaneous. A simultaneous emergence. Wow. And just to sit around wondering about where everything came from. Mm -hmm. He said, we don't have time to do that. But you can can include that in, in, in one's thinking, can be included in one's thinking, while we're tackling the, the so-called reality episodes right in front of our nose, right in front of our eyes, I'm trying to pay attention to a lot of things that I used to think were kind of sort of temporary and um, something that, and I'm looking always looking for the constant rather than the temporary. Like uh, people who have passed away in my life, I, I, I think of the tragedy of that or the absence of that is temporary. And, and, and a lot of people make that a constant. So there's a constant that transcends what I call the, the stuff that we've been hijacked to, hijacked from the cradle, <laughs> in, a, mm-hmm. in a sense. I, I, the other day I was saying, hijacked from the cradle. Was well, the cradle Africa? <laughs> Maybe. Are you gonna still play? I was just working on Bassoon parts here. <laughs> I do plan on still playing. And you mentioned Monica Ellis earlier. So, you know, you, uh, I, I know that you're familiar with uh, the, the bassoon and the sounds that, that, that it could make. Yeah, yeah. I used to carry one when I went to NYU. I used to carry one on the, on the subway in New Jersey, back and forth. But we carried a bassoon and I had the violin, not all at once. And I, I was a clarinet major, but they wanted me to play in the orchestra, the baritone sax, and it had me tune up the orchestra with it. <laughs> with, with the Barry sax. Yeah. <laughs> with the baritone you beat, sax. You beat the oboe. They wanted to play all the cello parts, the, the transcribed cello parts and stuff like that. He's looking for a balance in the orchestra. He said, oh, you can always do the clarinet when you're in your off time. <laughs> but in my final examination, I, I studied the, 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 the Mozart, that one. Mm-hmm. And I went all the way from Newark, New Jersey, on a bus, the subway, the tubes underneath the water, the trunk, and into the downtown the Greenwich Village and forgot the music oh. to do my exam. And when I got in there, and I, I, said, I can't go all the way back to New so the, uh, the Dr. Van Bodengraven, he was, his, his name was Dr. Van Bodengraven. He said, see what you can remember. And he said, start from the beginning. And I, I used to the horn out and all of a sudden I started playing it. Then he would stop and say, 
to go to another section. And, this, and he'll start different sections in the, the, the fast part, what do you call it? And he said, okay. And then when I was going to graduate, the people who make out your, uh, the, the, the points, counselors the, yeah, all the points and everything, they do, you're not still do that yourself. They do that. Somebody made a mistake and, let, and I was absent one point missing. Dr. Van Bodenbraven asked me to come to his office and uh, I'm talking about myself and had me play scales on certain instruments. Just so it's going to be a teacher, I was a music education teacher. Just a scale on this and everything. And he said, okay, you got your point. And also he had them a $100 scholarship back then. This is in 1952, 53. $100 scholarship for me to make sure, you know. I, I kind of remember that kind of, uh, the way they're talking about this tuition now. You owe us this and you go, wow. It was $22 a point back then. <laughs> what do you think it sounds like to take the gravity out of music? Take the gravity out of music. Thinking about zero gravity. Oh, zero gravity. To be unattached at the right time. But if you attach to something too long, it doesn't free you to be open-minded and, and something that simple. So uh, the, to be in a state of zero gravity, it's, it's uh, finding out what um, mistaking the constant for something that's only temporary. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that I think everything has, has a time for to be used. I used to say things like, when you cut a fingernail off and throw it on the ground, I equated that with murder. I said, you take the fingernail off and throw it on the ground, that's nothing. But that fingernail will, will transform into something. It has a use. Everything has a use. I'm even looking at the ants sometimes. They didn't be on our way in the house. These ants said, well, if I try to be so benevolent that you just let the ants have their way, you know, there's a part in the Human Revolution, the first Human Revolution book, where Daisuke Keita and Arnold Toynbee talking about, is there ever a time where you have to kill within these scriptures and philosophy and all that? Is there ever a time? And I've been reading, I didn't read the whole thing, but I'm going to get back to that because I'm not going to even talk about what that was actually saying now. But some people come to the meetings and they, they would say, oh, the meeting is boring and the meeting is boring. And somebody brought that up and the meeting wasn't boring anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Shaking things up. You have to shake things up sometimes, even, yeah. even spaces yeah. like that. Yeah. We're so mm-hmm. detached to um, our instruments or music sometimes. But I know that you talk about music being a part of your eternal journey. How can we help other people realize that truth? Oh, you know, when my wife passed away, I went to Japan to, to do a concert there. And I talked with uh, President Shuji. He was uh, the president of Japan, of Japan, Sokogakai, when Daisokogakai became international president. And he, I have what he wrote in my book, one of my um, first books that you have. He did a diagram of what he called the musical Buddha. Uh, not just musical, they said the, the, the one, the Buddha who carries sound and whatever all that means through the universe. And he, he did like a universe thing. 
and he did the Japanese uh, characters, and he was saying, the interpreter would tell, this is like you here, and you are moving through universe with not just message of music, but it's, it's telling you what your mission is. Because people ask me now, do you miss playing the horn for three years? I said, no. And they go, what? I, I don't miss it. I, I might try to get back to it a little bit. But um, the, the mission is in everything we, we do. So I, I don't want to wrap everything up in this opera that I'm working on. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> It's an opera after all. It's a, you know, man, I like that phrase in, in one of the books that Dice Off He said, make demons and devils your allies. Make demons and devils. Your... And some people say, oh, that's like Tai Chi, huh? No, it's not like Tai Chi. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that that emerges, that occurs when your life condition comes to the point where it, it makes a transition without you even counting the beans or knowing it, or like it's saying, how does that happen? The same thing like electricity, I guess. You turn the light on, the light goes on. So in, in people's lives, there's something that has to turn on for this so-called devilish function to become an ally. Something that that's deeper than just being sincere. And when we sing, when we say words matter, he's like, nam yo renge yo, nam yo renge yo. Or you call somebody a name, you can see how simply something can happen by when with words to someone else. If that's, I'd say, turned in another direction, you don't take back hateful words, but you uh, convert Something is converted to, to, to the, a beneficial scenario rather than an ugly one. Beneficial rather than you're doing the same thing that thieves and robbers do. Thieves and robbers, are, it's like it's so easy to take something from someone. That it's a little more difficult to give something. It's like sometimes you take a thought, but to give a thought. So people say, well, I do that when I'm praying. I can't be thinking about it, but I'll, I'll pray. Okay, that, that's probably a trickle. But uh, I, I think this, this thing about life is so, so deep that everything means something. Everything means, even if somebody say they pray and, and nothing happens, that means that. Means that. <laughs> <laughs> because that person that's doing it or not doing it, you know, they say, you send somebody a happy birthday card because you think you're supposed to. Not really because you want doing it, right? And that want makes a something twist in your cause and effect of life. The whole cause and effect thing is something else. So I mean, I better watch what I'm doing. Man. <laughs> <laughs> this year has taken so much from so many people. It's been difficult with coronavirus and you know, um, police brutality, you know, when you talk about words, the power behind words, what are your words 
for um, people like me who are beginning uh, my journey through Buddhism or people who have not yet even began that journey? How can how can we all turn this challenging year of 2020 into something positive for us? I, I think that it begins with that first step. Whatever the first step, how it comes out, it's like when you say uh, nam, you're a kill. And when you start to do that, I keep saying like, like the word daimoku. When you do the daimoku, 10 minutes, five minutes, something like that, something, because we, we will do something for an hour, something else, or two hours, and then things happen, and you wonder why that happened. Oh, this connected with the, possibly connected with that envy, the feeling of envy, or when you push, what's the name, down the stairs, or, not that radical, but when you're holding um, envy, to, to be envious, or sometimes it's like it crosses into the biblical stuff like, uh, is worrying about your neighbor's progress in life or treasure. What the neighbor got in his garage that you don't, then the neighbor could be not just one person, but their neighbors, he said, the Republicans, <laughs> somebody who's called Republicans uh, or somebody who's called liberal and somebody who's called conservative or somebody who's called uptight or somebody who's called, you know, too loose or compar- making comparisons. And so I think all of that is, is impacted by your your willingness to be open to, uh, to say, let me see what this Daimoku is going to do. Even if you even to say that, let me see what it's going to do. I, I think there's there's a lot of room for speaking up only if the person continues to study. I saw on the TV yesterday, George Washington Carver, there's so many, he did 100, 110, more than 110 things came out of the peanut, oils and all kinds of stuff. He, they wanted him to be head of this and head of that in different countries, but he, he wanted to stay within this, so they're going to take over, you know. He knew they were going to take over, like uh, the guy who invented the film, and something like he died with 30-something cents in his pocket something like that, mm-hmm. uh, J.P. Morgan and all these people. Not, there's a lot of people think that their, their mere presence or their, their, their track record or how many things they have sold, the audiences they've been in front of, huge audiences, that that, that carries your message. You know, that carries your mass. That, that's you singing, talking to the people. Audiences shouldn't try to live their life According to some lyrics, rock and roll lyrics, mm-hmm. all those you know, songs and everything, what you see, can't live your life according to that. And there's a lot of people, who, groupies, without going on the road with the musicians. Right. And uh, and uh, groupies from a book that they they read that they think is so astounding. You know, like, that that self-examination thing, find for yourself, is really something. But some music, of course, doesn't have lyrics. But you can you can live by that, surely, or be impacted by that, right? The jazz, and jazz, jazz or jazz or classical or, or or anything. Yeah, 
or, or if you want to make classical more democratic, you want to make this what jazz has been trying to do. They're just the word, democratic, everyone has something to say. And then you say, if you have something to say, you really have to study to back up what you're saying. The process of enlightenment is when you, you're really having not just people over to dinner who don't look like you and all that stuff like that, but uh, you're both involved with uh, af after the marching, but never give up. <laughs> I never will give up. Certainly not. That's not what the superheroes would do, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> well, you know, just uh, it was March the 5th. I don't know if you heard the L.A. Phil. They did a thing that I wrote for uh, mm -hmm. Renee Fleming. And Dudamil conducted it. And another thing that was done when it was finished, Dudamil waved to the audience. And this little black girl came out of the She wrote this whole thing for Symphony Orchestra, too. And uh, uh, Angela, who was back in the Black Panther time, Angela she was Davis. there. Too. Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. And she had a, a vocal thing, a voiceover thing that she did with Herbie's piece of music that he wrote way back. But they arranged it, you know. And that was that evening. And the, the, the thing that I did was uh, based on the, uh, Maya Angelou's poem. And they had a, a, a singer. And I never heard of her. She was good. So it was that evening. It was just before the pandemic, March the 5th, before the announcement of the pandemic. Why do you think more orchestras don't do things like that more regularly? You know, the, the front office people, the board of this and the board of that, they still seem to be caught in the uh, rigmarole of, of um, favoritism mm. based on systemic inequality, you know, uh, systemic inequality. And, and I think that's where Yo-Yo is trying to free himself of being at the beck and call of a position in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And that's it. There's quite a few young people I've seen, they say they're not going to be graduating from Berkeley and other places. They, they don't want to uh, spend 40 more, 20 years sitting in the second violin, the first violin, whatever, mm -hmm. so, or just the orchestra. But you need an orchestra to play the opera that you're writing, right? So we do need orchestras. Oh, yeah. But, they, they, but they're going to be free-willed in a, in a sense. I don't know if you heard my last record called Eminon. Uh, it's a comic book in there, too. The, the graphic science fiction novel drawn by a, a, a cat. He lives in uh, Switzerland. It's, it's the orchestra, the chamber orchestra, the, no conductor, the obvious chamber orchestra. Mm -hmm. And it's called Eminon because I want to be no name backwards. Oh. No name. You know, that, that whole thing about naming things and, and packaging things and all that. So Blue Note, it, it, it's been out. It got a Grammy. It got a Grammy. That means. So the band that I have working with, five guys and the Orpheus people, and um, it is, we did it. <laughs> so <laughs> Education seems to be a very important part of it. I mean, I, I understand that you really blossomed at the arts high school, uh, arts, arts high. Um, what do you think we need to change or maintain in education to make sure that the next generation is going even further and exploring even more? 
Oh, this is uh, what uh, the Herbie Institute used to be, the Monk Institute, the Herbie Hancock Institute. And uh, I think um, I think Berkeley, they're trying to, they want to teach more also about uh, the business thing to control where it goes and all that. Mm -hmm. And soon there will be a school with your name, which means they'll be doing more of that. Yeah. So here's an interesting, uh, someone said, I think people, young people in school, music school, have to learn how to steal. And so I just said, you mean steal from yourself? Steal from yourself? To think about that. And I think that has a lot to do with confidence and everything like that. You, you, you write something and throw it away. But they all knew about this kind of story. The Debussy threw that piece of music away and, and it was uh, when his wife got, you know, that. So I think that's the story there. But to not cast away some things, oh, this is nothing. It's kind of arrogance there that works against yourself. Before we, um, before we have to go, I wondered if you could demonstrate um, a recitation of some of the Lotus Sutra. Oh, Bongo. Okay, I'll just do... The first, this is a small part of the beginning. They say, Myoho Ringe Kyo. And they say, Pondai Ni. By the way, Esperanza's brother, his name is Hoban. Wow. He's a, a graduated from Stanford Engineering and all that stuff. She's telling him a little bit. His name is Hoban. And, okay. Myo ho ringe kyo ho ben pondai ni. Ni ji said san ju san mai and jo ni ki go shadyato shobu chie jinjin murio go chie jinjin murio. That's just a, when I do a slow, I have to think about it. it Myo ho ringe kyo ho ben pondai ni. But you know, uh, Nikola Tesla, mm -hmm. Tesla, there's a documentary on him. He got all of his stuff, all his uh, formulas and everything, and he had them all transcribed to Sanskrit because he was, uh, I found that he said some, that Buddhism, that just Buddhism period, was the, the way to go for him, to keep all this stuff in Sanskrit. Whatever language you do is going to be subject to be the method of shorthand. And also, I think if it's read, spelled out in English sentences, it's so much parallelism to anything else you have been reading. And you're going to be using that time while it takes longer to be comparing English with English. Uh, and causes with causes. See what it says here. Now this says, but then the, the Sanskrit has uh, this or that, that or this, neither this nor that, neither one nor not two, neither empty nor full, neither that. It, it has those implied inferences that you will come out of your life, come out of your life without someone else telling you that in English. And if in English, I think it will stop because the English 
will, will, will carry with it definitions that are in English, mm -hmm. with English intent and thought. So intent to me is, is the open door, which kind of leads you to more truer intent, uh, ultimate intent. Once again, huge, huge, huge thank you to the legendary Wayne Shorter for taking the time uh, to, to talk with uh, Lolo Me. And a uh, huge thanks to Caesar for uh, helping us. He, he was very much involved with the editing of that interview, as well as my dear Scott Blankenship uh, and to Carolina, uh, Wayne Shorter's uh, wife. So again, thank you. I hope you uh, really enjoyed that treat. It was certainly a treat for me to speak with him. Um, and uh, I will um, uh, have that available uh, as usual. Um, on the uh, Triloquy website if you would like to uh, revisit that. I may even put the extended interview up there uh, for you to check out. But for now, we are going to get into this Triloquy. I hate to say it. I hope I don't sound ridiculous. I don't know who this man is. I mean, he could be walking down the street. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know a thing. Sorry to this man. So I only have, uh, Jonathan, I only have one uh, thing to talk about. Uh, we'll save that one. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to speak to an article that Scott and I uh, talked about a few weeks ago that you put me on to. It was uh, Daniel Elder. Uh, and, I, and I think I'm remembering that the name of the article was the uh, uh, Equity Silences the Muse or something along those lines. What, what, what were your thoughts on, on that as soon as you saw it? Well, Daniel Elder has been on... <laughs> something since the very early times of the pandemic slash kickoff of the George Floyd protests, the riots, the uh, looting and all of this. And he was he he made the mistake of conflating those latter things that I just said with each other, I think is what happened. That happened way back before this Muse discussion. Mm -hmm. Right. So he was already up on the chopping block. He really dug himself into a hole with that one. And I had never heard of the man before that. Uh, You're like, but apparently, Palmer, I, don't, I don't know this man. I, sorry to this man. <laughs> but apparently he had been like, he's on his website. He is a self-described prolific writer of choral music, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, suffice to say, I'm also a part of various communities on the internet that are like full of choir directors and stuff. So he was known. He, he is known. Mm -hmm. Right. And then he comes out with this take, and it's just like, yikes. That's when people started pulling his work. Uh, GIA pulled his work. I think Walton. I don't know if Walton pulled his work and these or are not. publishers. Just, yeah, the publishers, yes. Um, so he was getting canceled left and right, uh, which is a popular term for the mainstream in 2020, but has been a vehicle of success for a lot of underprivileged people when we talk about, quote, cancel culture. Speak, I speak wanna, to more to that specifically for a yeah, second. Yeah, you know, Paula Deen was the first. <laughs> ah, I forgot Paula about Deen, that. <laughs> she was the first modern example of, like, internet cancel culture, right? Because Paula Deen said that she would like for a wedding of her daughters or someone 
forgot who it was to be like an old plantation wedding and then that started getting that got people to probing into other parts of her past and i think she was asked point blank like have you ever said the n-word and she said yeah like back in the 70s i definitely said it and then she super got canceled like her show was canceled her book deals all this and Part of me, even back then, at the first cancel heard around the world with Paula Dean, and I, I'm making it specific that this was the first internet cancel. I'm sure yeah. people were getting canceled before. Um, you know, part of me is like, well, what do you expect? It was the 70s. But then, like, the other side of the argument is like, people knew the N-word was not cool in the 70s either. But there's a thing, like, I think nobody is safe from any of... Uh, the wrongdoing it's that you have to show that you have evolved um and i think we talked about this on our education reunion special like even within the queer space there are words and terminology that we used in 2010 right there are there are things there are things that content creators um on youtube and all over the, the the internet did in 2010 before like before Things started taking off and we were becoming more mindful of other communities that we're not a part of. Mm -hmm. When Before we started acknowledging our own privileges, before we started acknowledging marginalized people, even though we may be marginalized, there are folks beneath us on the ladder of privilege. And before we started being sensitive, which is not a bad thing, I like it's good because if you've ever been a part of a marginalized community, no matter who you are, if you have a disability, if you are a woman, but you're white, like, like there's still dynamics at play there. We have to acknowledge who's above us on the ladder of privilege and who is below us. Right. So I say all that to say that we, as especially in the content creation realm, have done jokes, have said things um, that may get us, quote, canceled in 2020. But my you asked me to speak on that more. Um, my philosophy is someone needs to be able. So everyone has more than likely said something problematic in the past but it is how we have evolved it is how we have shown our receipts like we talked about beyonce earlier uh how we have shown how we do the work now whether or not we should be forgotten by the quote cancel culture mob right because i don't think it's a mob i think that it is a legitimate tool for sussing out people who don't need to be getting money like or a platform if they are problematic and insist on continuing to be problematic. Now, to tie this back around to Daniel Elder um, and, and so many other people, you know, because he is not the only person in the arts specifically that I in classical, so-called classical music that I have seen saying, well, the, this new equity work is erasing um, white men. And I, you know, disagree. Yeah. And, and that was and Elder's blah, 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 blah. second point. Right. More recently. So I, I think what's unique about that, you know, to frame that around this idea of cancel culture is not like folks went back and dug in his legacy and found something to unearth he went out and put himself on front street to say i don't agree in 2020 with, I, I don't agree with what you niggas are doing y'all are trying to erase me what 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 tickled me um <laughs> what i was seeing from people in the comments was that well your music not good anyway so even <laughs> so even, even if even if we weren't talking about equity you wouldn't be uh hitting my stage <laughs> I don't I don't have the article in front of me, but I just remember one of the parts that a lot of people in the choral world were dragging him for was him saying that while he may like people might have been buying his music, he was not being celebrated mm -hmm. the same way as like these women composers or these people of or these trans composers. I'm like, boy, if you don't sit down somewhere like 
you ought to be glad that people are even buying your music in the first place. So you think that because you are who you are, you need to be celebrated. First of all, if you ask anybody in choral arts, they will tell you Elder sounds like a ripoff of like Whitaker. What's his name that did? uh, ah, I'm forgetting. I'm getting old now. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Lordison. Oh, Morton Lordison. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, he's really going, he's really talking about he's, he's something and he needs to be celebrated. And these are the opinions of other people. Again, you know, well, like I said, I'm, I'm just repeating what was said in the comments. I'm minding my instrumental business. But uh, if what well, so what are you before we leave this part of the triloquy? What are your words to the white men in the arts and elsewhere who feel like they're being erased as we uh, continue to explore diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging? I guess it's just to say that it might feel like erasure when you actually have to share the stage with everyone. Mm. When you're at the center of everything for literal centuries, okay, I get that it's going to feel that way, but you need to learn how to share. This is something that we teach kids at a very young age. But just imagine if you're the person that was never told to share, then all of a sudden you have to start sharing with people. And I, I get that this is like a try to understand it from there. Uh, perspective kind of way but also I'm telling them like get used to it because this is the way the world is going now and it should have been like this a long time ago yeah yeah well I hope you hear that uh, Mr. Elder uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I, I have my little thing but you know as you were talking I was, we could have gone in on him so much more but I'm just I mean you know. I, I'm you know tr- tricks and treats so I guess that's his treat we didn't um, <laughs> um, <laughs> we spared him right um, but, but before I get into my final 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 little thing you know as you were talking Jonathan I was thinking you know again we got Halloween coming up this weekend do we need to remind the people once again that a person's culture is not a costume i mean how many years <laughs> how many times do we have to say this every year I mean, and who as we, my who good we cancel after this weekend because they walking out in blackface or a, or a kabuki mask or whatever Just every time and as my friend zach on the podcast this kipok live said halloween is a time for white people to take off one mask and put on another <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I said it exactly how he said it. I think he said take off one hood and put oh, on another. <laughs> See, y'all be over there playing. <laughs> we be cutting up on that because we don't it, it, answer to so, anybody. So, so just quick uh, PS, PSA there. But, you know, my big triloquy. So back, I think it was Opus 66, you know, the um, uh, the Opus title, 24%. I talked about someone who I named Keith, who, um, you know, as I said on social media, very opportunistic. Mystically uh, decided to write a little um, article on me and sort of straddling the fence, you know, uh, maintaining the structures and the systems while, you know, swatting at me, but also kind of saying, oh, he's valuable, but, you know, not over here. Don't don't do it like that. Um, I oh, I read that stupid article in, you know, in frustration when I saw that this person, Keith, um, was actually recently hired as music director at the organization I used to um, work at. I got on on the Internet, first of all came out about my um, chanting and my uh, recent uh, Buddhist practices, but really putting folks onto this guy whose real name is Joe. And if you want to read um, that article, uh, I, I guess I'll uh, post it somewhere, what, what he wrote about me. Um, someone in the uh, comments of uh, on my comments mentioned, you know, how white men are able to climb these hierarchies, you know, climb these structures, despite, you know, 
what they have done, you know, to us or, or how they have framed uh, black people and, and the work of equity and, oh, don't don't do it like this. Don't do it like that. Jonathan, I'm just so sorry that I have to even, you know, spend time thinking about it. I feel like people think that we just love we just wake up in the morning and say, OK, what white person am I going to be angry at today? But the thing is, we are the victim and, and not that, you know, I'm making myself out or we should make ourselves out to be the victim. But, you know, we are on the other end of so much bullshit that, you know, that we oftentimes just don't address or can't address. So we need we need to take the or have the, not been addressed. Right. We need I to think take the, the point higher is, road, well, the point is, if you are and again, this goes back to what I said about being on the ladder of privilege. So even us as black men, because I think we both identify cis, as black cis men, black men, I'll even say cis black yeah. men. OK, even us. We can exist every day in life without having to even think about trans black women. Right. We we choose to because we know the dynamics of privilege. But there are plenty of other people who are, you know, black cis black men out there who would only care about black lives matter and not think all black lives matter. Right. And when I say all black lives matter, I talk about trans black women as well, because that is a discussion in the community. It's like, oh, wait, I didn't even think about this or I didn't know that these murders were happening, blah, blah, blah. I'm saying that to say that no matter where your position is, there's always someone that needs help. So naturally, there are going to be hella white people out there that just don't think about the fact that like we're not programming black music or they think, oh, isn't that enough that we're like we have the Negro spiritual as a genre so that people can pick it if they want right. to do it. They're not even looking into the facts and figures They're They're just think, oh, there's a space for that. So like, it's cool. We're all equal. It's like, no, you need to look into the perform the practices, programming practices, what we deem is valuable, blah, 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 blah. It's like and it's work. People are not going. So, unfortunately, by default, people are not going to work outside of their bubble of privilege to try to make things right, to make things equitable, yeah. to make things uh, more equal. Uh, no, I want to stay with equitable, right? Because equal, there's a whole cartoon about it, like that little drawing. Right. Which is problematic um, so, in itself, too, because there shouldn't be a fence at all. Well, look, I we've talked. OK, let's let the listeners know what we're talking about. First of all, there's a little cartoon and it's three people watching a baseball right. game and there's a fence and you know none of them have tickets to the um game so the tallest one he doesn't need a box he can see over the fence they can see over the fence and then someone that is a little shorter they need one box to see over the thing and then the shortest one the little kid needs two boxes right so that's the equitable that's the equitable part sure. of it uh the equality because the the, Cause the everybody two cartoons have are the same complete. boxes or same amount right of boxes. everybody's in, so like the equality quote unquote is one box per person right. the tall one doesn't even need a box right the the shorter one needs just just needs one box the shortest kid needs two boxes yeah. so some people would see the so so equality versus equitability in the world is people thinking well why does the person of color or the trans person get two boxes. I only get one box or I'm not getting a box. Well, I mean, they're clearly at a more d bigger disadvantage. But you say that this cartoon is problematic in itself because there's a fence and that there's a third cart. There's another cartoon that says the third option is liberation, where the peop the fence is removed and then everybody's out there on the field playing baseball. I say all of this. I explain all of this to say that when we look at it that way, it's like, OK, but these people were here to watch 
a baseball game. Right. So, like, let's keep it in the context of that. And if we really want to go there with it, then why are these people out unable to afford tickets to even go see the baseball game? What about the people that actually are in the stands in the stadium? And those po- folks in the stadiums got nerve are to paying four hundred and five hundred dollars right. per <laughs> opera performance to be there to watch the baseball game. And got nerve to talk about how many boxes whoever get who don't even have the money to go into the hall, you know? Right. And then, and then, you know, to tie this back around, you know, to Joe, we have people again, who are not only in those spaces within those systems, but have been, um, have been, you know, uh, given the opportunity to be in management decision-making um, positions in, in those systems. So, um, and I want to make sure that the listeners are very clear, you know, in this position, he will be choosing, um, much of the all of the overnight music and much of the daytime music for over 250 classical stations in the country. Do you trust someone who is going to go and publicly shit on me and the work I'm trying to do to do the equitable work on a national platform? I to sure do the don't. equitable work after out of his own mouth or fingers, however you look at it, how he typed it, saying that he doesn't know how to whatever he said. He said that you are a valuable person he said you were the right guy at the right time he was feeling salty that he didn't get the job that you got Mm -hmm. okay and then so like he was talking out of both sides of his mouth because he doesn't know this stuff that you provided for the and i didn't know we were going here with this like this is all (laughs) improv but look if we're gonna spill the tea we're good because i had some very strong i read his little blog post and it came across to me as you know Throwing a rock and hiding your hand. Yep. Yep. That is exactly what it was. Because how are you going to say that Garrett McQueen was a necessary voice? And we need more Garrett McQueens in the industry. But then you come behind them and you take this job. Are you going to in, are you going to adeptly uh, navigate this very much needed uh, field like like you just said he's going to be in charge of a lot of decision making yeah. is he going to be able to do that uh, is he consulting with anybody is he going to pay those consultants why not move out of the way like did he have a successful career I remember reading that he was like talking about the fact that he had more experience and that you were at least less experienced and so and, like, and yet trying I still to shade got it you that way you. and yet I still got it huh and hmm. you yeah you still have the knowledge like so like we also these are the people in the stands to go back to the cartoon reference like these are the people in the stands being like well I have the money or like I am the one who is educated it's like but how educated are you because while you may have technically done the work you don't even know the stuff that you don't know and someone like Garrett McQueen was able to come along and yeah, he might have had some errs and ums and showed his greenness or whatever you said. But eventually he evolved into a platform that was very necessary and talked about stuff that needed to be talked about specifically within this industry. And that applies and copies and pastes to many other industries that have to do with music across the board. Yeah. So you can't be like, we need a Garrett McQueen, but then go behind him and take his job. You know, and then talk about you're happy about whatever you said. I, I'm just so it fires me up. Yeah, it, it, it fires me up, too. Um, I'm not even going to say we'll see, because honestly, I don't care. I'm on the I'm on the create our own shit tip these days. Yeah. You know, that's why I've been working so hard independently creating these con this content for, you know, uh, and not just the podcast, but, you know, creating um, radio specials. You know, I, I haven't announced what I'm doing um, with KVNO out of Nebraska. 
Nebraska yet, but I'm also uh, collaborating with the Gateways Music Festival that's coming up on some radio stuff. So look, there are, and, and it's not just about me either. We shouldn't have to do that though. Right. Because these people wrote these checks in June and May. They said that they were dedicated to doing ABC, XYZ for people that look like you and me. So why is it that now you've lost your job and you have to go around here and do special things with various radio stations around the world? It's just, I'm sorry to cut you off. I mean, and no, you're fine. And I, I'm not even really even salty about it. I just wanted to make sure that the people knew that, you know, if somebody is going to be uh, on on the internet uh, talking about me and, and, and trying to diminish my work and is in a position of national power in this field, we need to name that and make sure people don't know. Um, Jonathan, I really appreciate your uh, co-hosted today. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely have to uh, do this again, you know, uh, in closing, you know, my, my final word here Jonathan you brought up throwing uh, a rock and hiding your hand I have yet to say the name of the person who actually terminated me because I'm not that I'm not that kind of guy and they already you know out here talking about how um, you know we need to um, you know stop shitting on white women and, and all that sort of thing it's a white woman who actually terminated me you know Bill Burr got onto that uh, complicity a, a, a few weeks ago so um, happy Halloween to my white women. I hope y'all understand uh, what you need to do to help us as well. See you next week.